welcome to Horror Movie Podcast, where we're dead serious about horror movies. We have a bi-weekly show that's released every other Friday, and this is episode 22. On Horror Movie Podcast, you'll hear in-depth horror movie reviews, especially for new releases, with ratings and recommendations to help you decide whether you should buy, rent, or avoid these movies. And I am your host, Jay of the Dead, podcasting from Salt Lake City. And as of right now, thus far, I have no co-hosts joining me tonight. Typically, I do have Wolfman Josh and Dr. Shock with me. And for those who don't know, Dr. Walking Dead, Kyle Bishop, is still our fourth official co-host. But unfortunately, none of those dudes was available for this recording. So this episode may very well end up being a solo cast with Jay of the Dead at the helm in its entirety. But before you shut off the podcast, just give me three minutes to convince you to listen to this show. During the course of episode 22, you're going to hear about our five, count them, five episode releases, one each Friday in October, and that ends with Friday, October 31st, Halloween Day, for our big horror movie podcast, Halloween the Franchise slash Halloween the Holiday Extravaganza. October 2014 is going to be nuts around here, so get ready for that. And you're going to hear reviews for at least four horror movies. The first one is No Vacancy by writer-director Chris Stokes. Aftershock, which is the disaster horror flick starring Eli Roth. And then a film called Beneath. That's the Larry Fessenden film. And more on him in future episodes. And then another film that's also called Beneath that's about some trapped coal miners. And it's inspired by true events. So you can count on at least four horror movie reviews, uh, maybe more if we're lucky. On Horror Movie Podcast, as you know, we like to examine what makes horror films scary. So I do have a little segment prepared about the science of horror. It's just this study I want to talk about. Not a big deal, but it's kind of cool. And though I primarily like to focus solely on horror movie reviews on this podcast, Sometimes when there's a show like this one where I'm only reviewing a few films and I need to spice things up because it's just one person talking at you, I like to bring you some horror-related segments to mix it up. And that's really the nature of our hodgepodge Frankensteinian episodes. Also, there's been a lot of talk about the way mainstream film critics for websites and publications regard horror films and the horror genre itself. And I think you'll be surprised at the reality of things. So I actually want to bring you an occasional segment, not every episode, but once in a while, where I examine the reality of how horror films have been regarded in mainstream film criticism. And if that sounds boring to you, I understand. It sounds boring to me too, to be honest. But I think that you'll see that the way critics have responded to horror over the years is actually pretty informative and instructive about the genre at large. So give me a chance to warm you up to that segment. So as of right now, uh, that's what I got planned for episode 22. And if you can listen to my voice drone on for a while, I think we'll have some fun. I'll do my best to put some little horror clips in there and some music every once in a while to break it up. And I hope that helps. But that's three minutes. So turn this off if you must. But for those of you faithful ones that are still here, let's move into my feature review of Aftershock. I feel like every girl I meet after download some new app. What happened to meeting a girl in the park and saying, hey... How about a cup of coffee? <laughs> <laughs> Don't worry, gringo. We're taking you to a nice park where you can ask a girl for coffee. 
trust me. Next. This place is awesome. It's like the indie station of Latin America. That's the real Chile. Okay, that trailer you just heard is for a film called Aftershock. Now, I love good taglines, and in some ways, I think that's kind of a lost art. Although in tonight's show, I'm actually going to be talking about a couple of taglines that I liked, and this is one of them. So Aftershock has a tagline that reads, The only thing more terrifying than Mother Nature is human nature. Right? It's kind of cool, because it really fits this movie. So the premise to Aftershock is, it follows three friends who are enjoying some vacation time in Chile. Some people say Chile. Uh, Chile. Anyway, they hit the wineries, they try to hook up with some girls, and they do a lot of clubbing. But one night, while they're out hitting the clubs in Valparaiso, Chile, they meet up with three girls. Now you have six people here in your group of co-eds. It's always co-eds. And that's the setup so far. But the premise and the inciting incident of Aftershock is that a huge earthquake and then several aftershocks rock the city while they're out partying at night. And um, there's also a possible threat of an oncoming tsunami as well as a result of the earthquake. So while you've got these friends running around trying to get medical attention, trying to get to safety, the city just comes apart at the seams, both physically and morally, and the natural disasters end up becoming the least of their worries. And so what we have here is a blend... It's a genre blending movie where you got the disaster genre and you've got the horror genre and they're put together. Now that's very cool to me because I love survivalist horror and this is essentially another survivalist horror film. So you've got this straight up disaster flick that isn't shy about showing us the sociological aftermath of how humanity becomes inhumane in the midst of such chaos. Now, Wolfman Josh and I actually reviewed this movie back on episode 47 of Movie Podcast Weekly, and that was in 2013 when we did that. And I remember how long I had been looking forward to this movie. I was anticipating it because the initial cover art showed this still shot scene of violence with some significant blood splatter. And this film was said to be uber violent and extremely intense. And though I actually like the movie just fine... You know, I, I still have to say that Aftershock ended up being a bit of a disappointment for me. Now, this movie was directed by Nicolas Lopez, who's actually a native of Chile, where the movie is set. It's produced by Eli Roth, who also co-wrote the story and the screenplay, and he plays one of the lead characters. Now, according to my research, this film is based on true events, or at least inspired by some true events, from the February 2010 earthquake that occurred in Chile. And it was an 8.8 .8 on the moment magnitude scale, which I guess is the new scale that's um, kind of replaced the Richter scale. I could be wrong on that. I'm not a seismologist, okay? So don't everybody jump on me on that. So anyway, <laughs> it is a real life earthquake that happened. And it actually ranked as the sixth largest earthquake ever to be recorded by a seismograph. By the way, 
don't read up too much on that real-life earthquake before watching the film because it may actually spoil some of the movie for you because a lot of the developments in the movie, as I said, are inspired by this event. And so some of the quote-unquote surprises or the things that may or may not be surprising to you have actually come from the historical event. I'm just talking about the major plot developments. I mean, as I've actually researched it, I was really surprised at how accurately or closely, in a general sense, I guess, this movie follows that. And so I was going to read some of the accounts of the real stories to you here just for interest's sake, but it would spoil parts of the movie. If you do want to look into that after you watch the film, you can read about it on Wikipedia. Just search for the words 2010 Chile Earthquake. Aftershock, appropriately, was shot in Chile and actually many of the same locations where the destruction took place. So there's a real authenticity of this. It reminds me a little bit of the film In Cold Blood. Now, probably most of this audience is familiar with that, but just this is a little tangent here, but it's kind of fascinating to me. In 1967, there's a film by Richard Brooks, I believe it was called In Cold Blood, and it's actually an adaptation of the Truman Capote novel by the same name, and that's about the real-life occurrence where there were these two losers, basically, who planned to go to this Kansas family's house and rob them, and in the process, they just decided to slaughter the whole family, and the movie Capote was also based on this. Anyway... The film, though, In Cold Blood, was actually shot in the home of the murdered family. And so, um, I don't know, that that always kind of bugged me a little bit personally, because I think that's like terribly exploitative or something, although it definitely gives it a real air of authenticity, right? Because you really get the sense of the tragedy that happened there. I don't know, there's something about knowing that as you watch that film, but same thing here. Uh, Maybe not quite as strong, but I mean, this is the same city, same locations where this happened. So that's kind of cool, I think, on one hand, you know. So this idea of doing this film, I guess, came from a conversation between Eli Roth and the director Nicolas Lopez, when Lopez described the horrors of not just the earthquake itself, but just the utter chaos and the collapse of society that occurred after it happened. And that's something I got to really compliment Eli Roth on. He's really good at finding horror stories out of the real world, or at least things that are inspired by real world ideas, kind of like the origins of um, Hostel. We'll talk about that more on a future episode, actually, because Dr. Shock and I talked about reviewing the Hostel films. Here's another little weird trivia tidbit from Wikipedia, I guess. Eli Roth ended up raising $2 million in funding from a group of doctors in Buffalo, New York. (laughs) That's part of the way he financed this film, which I think is weird and random. But um, the doctors in Buffalo, New York must be generous and horror fans. I don't know. Anyways, the huge earthquake, which is the inciting incident, what sets the story in motion, this doesn't actually occur until about 34 minutes into the film. So there is a lot of setup and character development. And so people who are impatient horror fans, this is going to be probably a lot to wait through for you. And even though I think it's moderately entertaining to watch, you know, the first 34 minutes, kind of as a straight drama, just seeing these characters out there partying and stuff, the characters themselves are such archetypes that it's really unnecessary because you really get a feel, you have a handle on who they are within the first five minutes. 
So when the earthquake hits, it seems pretty strong, but I still don't think it really captures the scariness of it or what I would imagine the scariness would be. And don't get me wrong, I mean, the scene is fine, but considering that this is a disaster film... I think they should have done more with the initial earthquake scene. I'm not talking Roland Emmerich stuff or anything, but I'm just talking, I don't know, something even more visceral, something, for example, one of the best examples I can think of for this is a film that's not a horror movie, but boy, is it horrifying, and it's called The Impossible, and it's about that tsunami that happened on um, December 26th. Anyway, that's got Naomi Watts in it, Ewan McGregor. If you're into dramas and disaster movies, you got to see the way they depict that tsunami coming in and just destroying everybody and everything. It's just horrifying. Anyway, I wish that this film would have been more along those lines. I did read that they had five cameras running during the shooting of the sequence when the earthquake hit. So that's kind of, I guess, noteworthy. But (laughs) I guess that my untrained eye didn't pick up on that as much. Anyway, another complaint. uh, The gore scenes that happen, because the, the gore begins when the earthquake hits... The tone kind of switches from party time to this really crazy over-the-top gore, and it ends up feeling comedic, to be honest with you, and, and I hate that. Like, I want it to be gore that gets, like, super serious and upsetting and kind of creepy, but this is, um, you know, a real problem for this film. I mean, I almost get the sense that they're going for some dark comedy in there, you know, to amuse the sickos in the audience, but I mean... Because it's subtly silly a little bit, and it takes me out of the movie. It kind of breaks the spell. I like my horror movies to be deadly serious. And so, just so you're aware, I mean, the the gore is crazy, it's over the top, but they do it in a tone that's, I think, meant to be a little comedic. But aside from the scenes of violence, I think Aftershock has some really strong imagery in it. Like, for example, you'll see um, dead and bloody children, just so you know. And there's really two kinds of violence in Aftershock. There's the gore and the dismemberment that comes from Mother Nature. And then there's the violence that comes from human nature, as the tagline suggests. And basically, there are some pretty awful deaths that you would never want to suffer in your life. The last shot of this film, the ending, I won't reveal it, of course, but I will say I thought it was great. I really like the ending myself, but I suspect that it will be pretty divisive. I think half the viewers will love it, half the viewers will hate it. Some of the IMDb trivia says that most of the special effects in this film were done practically. And then it also says that the film was originally rated NC-17, but it had to be cut and re-edited in order to get the R rating. And I think that's a real shame because if they had kept this baby NC-17, I think the film would have been a lot stronger, would have been more horrific, and I would actually like to see the NC-17 cut, to be honest with you. Anyway, just so you know, this is currently streaming on Netflix Watch Instantly, and I think you should check that out because for me, it's a 5.5 out of 10. And I call Aftershock a rental. By the way, when Wolfman Josh reviewed it with me on Movie Podcast Weekly in episode 47, he gave it a 4 out of 10 and he said, avoid. So there you have it. That's our review of Aftershock. Now we'll move into our feature review of No Vacancy. We are on our way to Vegas. We're gonna have to walk up the road and go find something. It's our best bet. 
when you're in the middle of nowhere. Excuse me, we have flat tire back up the road a few miles. Come with me. Sometimes you have no choice. It's not really safe to drive at night, and we've got motel rooms out back. But to ask for help. Thank you so much. Hey, Ray. I'm just happy to help out. You'll be shocked when you see the rooms. What was that? Yeah! Is anyone there? I am begging you! From the director and writer of You Got Served. What do you want from us? To want you die. No one. Please, you don't have to do this. Rests. <laughs> you guys aren't going anywhere. In peace. Okay, now, if your first encounter with No Vacancy is its trailer, then this part of the trailer may have made you raise your eyebrows just a little bit. From the director and writer of You Got Served. <laughs> I don't know about you guys, but I wouldn't try to sell my horror flick on those laurels. Anyway, it's kind of hilarious to me, but setting aside its poor trailer... If the first time that you saw No Vacancy was by looking at the cover art, you know, the poster like I did, and then reading the premise, then you probably had a little bit of hope for this one, kind of like me. So the IMDb premise reads, Seven friends on a road trip to Las Vegas break down near a rest stop motel where they encounter a seemingly helpful group of people convinced to stay overnight. The friends wake up in their rooms to a gruesome and bloody terror. Now, again, I don't know about you guys, but that kind of excites me. I live six hours from Las Vegas, and I love going there. It's one of my favorite places. They got tremendous uh, movie stores down there. They got tons of good horror. And Bill Shetty lives there, too, by the way. Anyway, <laughs> the road between Salt Lake City and Las Vegas is pretty barren. It's a desert, basically, as you might imagine. And it's a great premise for a, a horror movie. Now, I actually wish this film was set in Las Vegas, but it's not. They don't quite make it there because the film happens on the way there. And by the way, it's kind of funny because these guys get lost on their way to Las Vegas, and it's actually kind of hard to do that. So <laughs> I know it's addressed in the film, but it still cracks me up because basically Las Vegas is essentially the only thing there in the middle of the desert, and so it's really hard not to find it. So a ton of movies are set in Las Vegas, but surprisingly, and it's probably due to the cost of filming there, there are very few horror films set in Las Vegas, and that's just a shame because I think that that town is perfect for a horror film setting. Anyway, No Vacancy was written and directed by Chris Stokes. And I have to say, it has a pretty good-looking cast. Some of these smaller films, they don't pull together the beautiful talent, but this has beautiful talent associated with it. So, they're on their way there. They hit something in the road. They have a blowout. And, by the way, the sound design here, the, the foley or whatever it is, is pretty bad. You know, it's like, okay, did they run over a cow? Or what was this? Anyway... The boys need to walk up the road to find somebody and the girls stay with the vehicle. And of course, one of them is an aspiring filmmaker or whatever, and he's got this camera with him. And so some of the footage is found footage. Most of it is conventionally shot. Now, this is a weird trend that we're into now because it's like we're shifting away from found footage, but we're still keeping it in the film to some extent. I mean, they always have these hybrids now, which I think is really interesting. It's almost like 
just speculating here. You guys can weigh in too, but it's like, okay, filmmakers are thinking that there are some strengths to found footage. They, they still want to keep some of those elements, but they don't want to be tied down by all the restrictions associated with that convention because, yeah, it'd be really burdensome to write a screenplay and block your shots and to, to film the action and to play by all the rules. And as we've seen, most found footage films blow it and they aren't actually able to maintain that premise. So that's kind of interesting. Anyway, the audio to No Vacancy is a little sketchy. Most of the film looks pretty decent, to be honest with you. But one of the characters, his sound is much different than the rest of them. And so it's almost like either he couldn't come back in for the ADR work that needed to be done or they just went with his mic and his mic was bad or something. It's kind of bizarre. So you've got these people at this oasis because they end up finding this bar slash diner slash motel and there are some like nice local youth there about the same age, their peers, and they seem overly nice and overly hospitable. Okay, and they're being super generous with these strangers. And I'm talking about our traveling group that's on their way to Vegas. Now, here's the thing. When people start being this nice to you, you have to be a little bit suspicious. I mean, come on. This is one thing we learn from horror movies. (laughs) So this is one of those motel horror movies where you have people who are passing through travelers who are end up trapped at a motel and they're preyed upon. So it's along the lines of, um, but not as great as, Psycho, Eaten Alive, Mountain Meadow, Motel Massacre, <laughs> whatever that one was called. That's a fun movie. Vacancy, okay, like all those use like hotels to prey upon their victims. And I love that. I actually think it's a really good premise. It works out well most of the time. And what's interesting about this movie, I will compliment it, is... Um, you think or you assume that things are going to go down at night and actually everything's fine. It's not until the daylight the next day when they realize that they're in serious trouble. Now, I think that's killer cool when horror happens in the daylight. There's something truly unsettling about that because we just always assume that if there's a light on or if it's sunny outside that we're good to go, but that's not always the case. Now, this film, I will tell you, No Vacancy has some decent kills. There is a kill in there a la Chain Letter, where you get somebody like pulled apart by two different vehicles, which is super awesome. There's some torture scenarios in this, but um, still, I mean, the tormentors in here, the quote-unquote monsters of the movie, they're just too young, too good-looking, too wholesome, and you just don't buy them. And then later, you know, the pace gets killed. I mean, the film gets really quiet. The action stops. I mean, the problem is, and this is heartbreaking to me when this happens, no vacancy actually starts ramping up the tension and the suspense and you're on this roller coaster and then like they just stop in the middle and then they wait a long time to try to get this jump scare to pay off and it's just, um, you know, it just kills the pace. But the real problem with No Vacancy is it all comes unraveled as you learn the backstory and the motivation to this. And man, that's where it falls apart, you guys. It's pretty dumb, to be honest with you. I mean, some of the action is hard to see or it's unclear. Some of it's dark. And, you know, this basically devolves into hand-to-hand combat, which in a horror movie is, um, I mean, that's not unusual. But when you don't have much else that's riding on it and it just, it comes down to that, 
it's kind of weak. So I will say No Vacancy starts out promising. It does have some good scenes toward the beginning and the middle or decent, but the latter half of the film just totally falls apart. But I guess it is worth renting at least for the first half, but I would call it a low priority rental. So for No Vacancy, I would say it's a 5 out of 10, and I'd say rent it if you get time. Okay, let's move into talking about the science of horror. On Horror Movie Podcast, we like to talk about the science of horror and specifically why things are scary and what makes them effective in a horror movie. So for the filmmakers out there, here's something that might be useful to you that I learned from discovermagazine.com about a phenomenon called approach aversion. Now just by way of a little preface here, there's a film from 1989 called Pet Cemetery. It's the adaptation of the Stephen King novel. And um, by the way, Stephen King wrote the screenplay for this movie too. And I just want to say that even though it's a little bit dated, Pet Cemetery is still, I think I've called it before, the probably the scariest movie, to me at least, because it has so many different effective elements of horror. It's kind of like a... Um, a salad bar or a buffet style horror film where you've got a little bit of everything but probably the scariest scene or one of the creepiest scenes involves a character named Zelda and everybody knows who listens to this podcast that I think Zelda is freaking scary but there's one shot where we see the camera you know our point of view we walk into a, a bedroom and over across the room hunched down in the corner is Zelda this Zelda character and uh, she gets up and she's kind of crouched over because of her uh, spinal disease. And she starts approaching the camera very quickly. And as I talk about it, I have chills right now. I just, and I want to look behind me because I'm so nervous. <laughs> anyway, that scene is freaking scary. It's very effective. And that is a great example of what's called approach aversion in terms of the way it affects us. Now, there was an article by Elizabeth Preston, as I said, from discovermagazine.com. It's a blog, and it says that objects bring fear the closer they appear. And I'll just read a little bit from this. We have negative reactions to anything that's moving toward us, basically, according to this study. No matter how harmless the object is that's moving toward us. And there are behavioral scientists at the University of Chicago's Booth School of Business along with colleagues at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and they asked whether we would feel differently about things that are moving toward us or away from us or staying still. So that's kind of the premise of their study. And the researchers started out with things that weren't scary. Like they didn't start with a grizzly bear or a stranger, but with letters, as in letters of the alphabet. They used uh, 32 letters from the English alphabet which is hilarious because I, I always thought there were only 26 letters in the English alphabet, but whatever. Um, no, it, they use them in a variety of different fonts, so I think there were a few repeats. But anyway, they started out with these different letters and they narrowed them down to the letters that the viewers, the people who were looking at the letters, felt the most neutral about, or in other words, letters that people weren't bothered by generally. And what happened was the letters that were moving closer to the subjects, they were rated more negatively than those moving away from the people or staying still. <laughs> and then they repeated the same experiment again with emoticons, like the little face, the smiley face, and the mouth, you know. 
same thing, and whether it was a smiley face, a frowny face, or a neutral face, they felt more negatively about faces that were coming toward them. (laughs) And in another version of the experiment, they used sound, and like sounds that grew louder, as in getting closer, those elicited worse feelings from the test subjects. And then the experiments moved on to physical objects, like they used this large poster of the Chinese opera. And as the poster rolled closer toward them, they rated it more and more negatively, even though they would, you know, they were promised that the poster was not going to hit them in the face or anything. And so no matter what the stimulus ended up being for this study, people every time felt more negatively about things that were moving toward them. (laughs) And so the researchers called this phenomenon approach aversion. And so it's easy to see why like a threatening animal coming toward us or a stranger might make us nervous, but it's kind of weird to think about why we would be thinking that letters coming toward us would bother us. So anyways, you can generalize this information. I mean, they felt like it was useful, for example, in advertising. If you want to advertise something, don't make your product fly at the screen toward people or they will not like your product. (laughs) But on the other hand, if you're making a horror film and you want to scare people or bother them, make your monster go toward the people. And that seems obvious. Probably everybody knew that off the top of their head anyway, but it's interesting to hear a little bit of science behind it. Even in your personal social lives, I think it's also um, interesting because like, you know, if you're meeting someone, you don't want to like rush up on them and get in their face and stuff like that. So researchers basically said that we may feel more powerless and less in control when something is moving toward us. And so that's the that's kind of the idea of it. But I'll, I'll link that in the show notes in case anybody wants to read the article. And that is our science of horror segment today about approach aversion. Now we'll move into our feature review of Ben Katai's Beneath from 2014. I'd like to make a toast to the unclean industry that paid for your loss. Well, 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 coal miner's daughter. You actually showed up, huh? Gentlemen, we got a lady with us. Let's be nice today. Anything that goes wrong down there, you get her out. Okay, now there are two movies right now that are out there called Beneath. And actually, there are more movies called Beneath. I think there's another horror movie that's a little bit older called Beneath. But if you're on the internet, like, for example, looking around on Amazon or whatever, you'll see two different films titled Beneath. And I'm going to be reviewing them both for you on this podcast. But this one that I'm talking about now is directed by Ben Katai. I'm not sure if that's how you say his name, but it's from 2014. And the cover is kind of dark, and it has this dirty arm there, and the title's in yellow letters. All right, here's the premise from IMDb. Inspired by true events, a crew of coal miners becomes trapped 600 feet below ground after a disastrous collapse. As the air grows more toxic and time runs out, they slowly descend into madness and begin to turn on one another. I'd say that's a pretty accurate uh, description. And this is a neat little film. I really am excited to tell you guys about this. I'd classify this as a supernatural, haunted, coal mine, survival, horror type of movie. And I actually 
Personally, I wish it didn't have the supernatural elements mixed in with it, but you can dismiss those. The way this film plays out, you can actually just kind of play them off in your head as like hallucinations, which is what I did, or whatever. Because I, I actually don't love supernatural horror movies, and um, it seems like everything now, especially new stuff in theaters, everything's based on supernatural stuff. Anyway, so in 2013... We're told here from title cards that a collapse at the Brackett coal mine left a group of workers trapped underground. And this movie is the account of what happened beneath the surface. And so the film opens with just a black screen. And then we hear just drilling and chipping and they crack a hole. And um, we see light pour into the shot. And it's a very cool way to open the film. And it's basically a rescue person going inside. You can see blood on the walls. There's blood inside, and he says, we've got a survivor. And so you see one person there. And that's how the film opens, and then it cuts to a title card that says four days earlier. Now, you know my style. I'm not going to tell you guys every scene in the movie, but I'm, I just wanted to describe the opening because right there, you can tell that you've got a horror film that is going to be well-made, at least to me. I mean, the way, just that opening shot, the way they start with blackness and then the light comes in from an unexpected place because you don't expect your perspective or your point of view to be underground. And it looks great. I mean, it's shot very well. So this film is uh, top notch. And I also like this kind of an opening because we know that there's going to be at least one survivor. And I like to see how we end up getting there right? Because it goes back to four days earlier and tells us the story up to that point. That's neat to me. Now, there's this veteran miner. He's retiring and he's played by Jeff Fahey. Trust me, uh, you know him. He's a good actor and I'm glad he's in this film. They're having a party for him and this is the night before his last day of work after 35 long years and he's kind of a hero at this mine. And so you know what's coming. I mean, tomorrow's his last day. (laughs) And so in actuality, a party like this would probably take place after his last day of work. But whatever. I mean, his daughter, who's a big shot attorney in the city, she's back in their little small town for the party. And, you know, they start talking smack and she accepts a challenge to actually go down into the mines tomorrow on her dad's last day. And of course, you know, as you know from the premise, they get trapped down there and things get serious. Very serious. And so I want to tell you, too, as far as casting, this film also stars Brent Briscoe, who's amazing. I love him in this movie because his mere presence in the film gives it a little more weight. I mean, that casting choice is brilliant. He looks exactly like a coal miner. That guy probably was a coal miner when he wasn't an actor, seriously. And and you know him. Um, you might not recognize his name, but when you see him, you'll know him. And another thing I like about this movie is there really aren't that many coal mine-related horror movies. I mean, of course, the first one we think of is My Bloody Valentine, you know, those two movies. But, you know, this is a scary place, and cave-ins are very scary, for example. I mean, that that's the claustrophobia, the darkness. I mean, it's just, it's insane. It's a great place to set a horror film, and that's one of the reasons why The Descent is in my top 10 of all-time favorite horror movies. I mean, that's not set in a coal mine, but it's set in a caving system, and man, is that freaky. So, you know, as you could probably tell from my review so far, this is also a survival horror film, and I love survival horror, 
Now, there are a number of effective jump scares in this movie, and it's really weird. I'm, I've been trying to think of a way to describe this to you guys, because like I've been telling you for, if you've been listening to me for a few years now, then you know that a lot of horror films don't really scare me. They don't really affect me, but for some reason, in this movie, you know, you get some shocking or surprising glimpses of scary faces and their jump scares, and they're meant to startle you, and probably they wouldn't startle most of you out there. Because it's pretty standard, really. I mean, it's it's well done and everything, but I guess I was just feeling sensitive to the scares because, man, I was jumping all over the place, and I don't know why. It creeped me out pretty bad. Maybe I had guilty conscience or something, but I was watching in the dark, and it's around 1 a.m., and, man, it was kind of freaking me out, to be honest with you. So, to me, I mean, I, my experience with this film is I, I think it's a scary movie. And what's weird about it, as I said, it's not that much different from other horror movies where you see distorted or scary faces, but, you know, the sound design is, is really well done and it's just very unexpected and it gave me chills. So it's awesome. And I'd actually call, I mean, I mentioned The Descent already. I'd call this a mix between The Descent and My Bloody Valentine and then maybe something supernatural. There are no beastly freaks in this, so I'll just put that out there. And there's no minor character you know like a slasher but the monsters in this film that do show up it's kind of like as far as their appearance you know it's a mix between the i am legend monsters which i did not like and some zombies but for some reason the mixture here i mean they don't stay on their faces very long it's actually you know it's always very quick and so it works well and um just a weird little story this is a side random note but i just thought i'd throw this in there too after I watched this movie and I went to bed, I mean, it was like something like 2.30 in the morning or something. There was no thunder outside. I didn't even think it was raining. And I walked into my bedroom and it was pitch black and everything. And my wife was asleep. <laughs> and all of a sudden, there was this huge, like, super bright lightning that came in my window. And honestly, this wasn't the case. I'm sure it didn't actually come in the window and strike inside my room, but it looked like it did. I mean, that's how bright the flash was. And seriously, like three or four seconds after that happened, there was the loudest crack of thunder. And that was it. That was the only thing. And so this movie already had me on edge. And then that experience happened and I about jumped out of my skin. Pretty awesome. Anyway, Beneath is really a pretty smartly written horror film, too. I mean, I love how, I mean, of necessity, a lot of times things happen in horror movies that don't make much sense. Characters do dumb things, and it's kind of um, conventions that aid the horror movie process. Well, in this movie, when things like that happen and it raises questions in your mind, within a minute or two, you have a character asking that question. You know, the thing that's bugging you, a character asks it in the movie. And it's not like in those movies where they kind of wink at the audience and say, I know this is stupid, so we're going to call attention to it. We know what we did there. It's not like that. It's like, yeah, this is a smarter film. And it's true. This is a problem. And, and they kind of like look to address it that way. It's kind of hard to convey, but I think they pull this off. So that's pretty cool. Then uh, there's a scene in this movie. I'm really excited about this. This is kind of coincidental, but there's actually a moment of approach aversion, which we talked about earlier <laughs> in this podcast. It's pretty cool. You've got this character walking down this cave 
toward the camera and he's whistling and singing and it's very unsettling actually and it's that approach aversion phenomenon so when you watch this because i trust that you will i hope you do then you can um pay attention to that now I was wondering, you know, the whole time, I didn't want to be spoiled on the film, kind of like with um, what I was talking about earlier with Aftershock. Remember how I said, if you research that 2010 earthquake too much, then you're going to get some major plot points. So I did not look up anything about this bracket mine tragedy while I was watching the film. I did afterward, and I'll talk about that in a minute. But during the film, I did have this little moral dilemma inside of me, this problem of making a movie from this real tragedy. Well, it turns out that this wasn't actually based on a bracket coal mine. In fact, at least I couldn't find such a mine or any such disaster. I actually believe that this was patterned off of um, the Sago mine disaster in West Virginia, my home state, and also blended with the Crandall Canyon mine disaster here in Utah, where I live now. So I think that, you know, the details of those two events, which were really horrific, I think that they combined those to make this movie. I'll tell you more about that in a second, but I just want to get down to the rating here on Beneath. For me, seriously, it's like, um, I give it a 7 out of 10. This is a strong rental. I do recommend it. It has some decent scares, and it is not super filled with horror elements like, um, How can I say this? I mean, in some ways, it's a little bit of a suspense film. It's a little bit of a drama. It's a little bit of a slow burn. So, you know, I think there are horror fans out there that will think it's more of like survivalist horror. Some people might think it's boring, but it's got enough of the scares sprinkled throughout it. And it's got some, you know, gory parts here and there that I think it works just fine as a horror film. So this is a strong rental, and I definitely recommend that you check out Beneath, because it's a seven. Now, I got another recommendation talking about coal mine horror. This is a documentary, and it's not a horror film, but it is pretty disturbing nonetheless. It is called Harlan County, USA, and it's from 1976. If you like documentaries, that's a must watch. You got to check that out. Now, let me tell you a story here as I wrap up this review. I mentioned that I'm from West Virginia, and in fact, a number of my family members, pretty close relatives, like my grandfather was a coal miner, and he was a mine inspector, and my uncle, who's still living, he was a coal miner, and um, my cousin has worked in the mines, and it's nuts, I mean, I'm kind of, even though I've, <laughs> I'm like a million miles from going into a mine myself, I've been near it and around it, and when that Sago mine disaster happened in West Virginia, a few years ago, it was very sad. There were 13 trapped and only one survived. And um, something I'll never forget is that they actually found some of the miners who were trapped and knew they were going to die, they tried to write notes. And this one miner wrote a note, and I've never forgotten it. He just found like a piece of paper or a napkin in his lunchbox. And he was in the dark, I guess. You could tell. You can actually look it up on the internet and see the note. But um, he wrote this note, and I just think it's profound, and so I thought I'd read it here because it's just, it's a little unsettling, it's a little sad, and it's just amazing. And it says, quote, Tell all I see them on the other side. I love you. It wasn't bad. Just went to sleep. And he signed his name. Super powerful. Anyways, coal mines are freaking scary. I can't believe people still work there. It's a great place to set a horror film, so check out Beneath. Think it'll really be worth your time.
Okay, let's talk about horror and mainstream film criticism. Now, I consider myself a horror critic, as well as a mainstream film critic, and I'd say the same is true for Dr. Shock and Wolfman Josh. I mean, I'm sure you're familiar with uh, Dr. Shock's amazing movie blog, dvdinfatuation.com, where he covers films that are from all genres. And then Josh and I also are hosts of um, Movie Podcast Weekly, where we review new movies that are in theaters, and that's of all genres as well. So we we dabble in both. But in, in 2009... I was the print film critic for a newspaper back east, and I wrote for a a very broad audience. I mean, that year, I reviewed the Friday the 13th, The Last House on the Left, both of those remakes, and Orphan. I reviewed those for the newspaper. I tried to slip in horror reviews every chance I could. And you might be surprised to hear this, but I think the first reason that film critics seem to be overly critical or maybe dismissive of horror is because of the pressure that they get from their editors, who in turn feel pressure from their advertisers and ultimately from the readership as a whole. Now, I got to slip in a few horror reviews, as I said, mainly because um, Friday the 13th and The Last House on the Left... Those are iconic titles. They're newsworthy, you know, so it was news that those were being remade. And then I just sneaked in Orphan because the title didn't seem that nefarious, you know, so it was really easy to review something like that. But just as an example, because I want to try to illustrate what I'm talking about, I actually had to talk with the powers that be at that newspaper about reviewing Inglorious Bastards because of the word bastard in the title, (laughs) because that was going to appear in print in this uh, quote-unquote family newspaper. But since it was a Tarantino film, I was able to review it because Tarantino is relevant enough to warrant a review of his film. Now, Bruno was another example. Now, both of these films I'm talking about now are not horror, of course, but um, (laughs) maybe in some ways horrifying. But but anyways, Bruno, I reviewed it that year, and honestly, it was difficult to even find the words to accurately describe the film Bruno because I couldn't even use euphemisms to describe some of the content that was in that film. So in short, there is a lot of pressure from the editors Because newspapers worry so much about offending their advertisers. You know, they don't want them to pool their advertising dollars because that hurts the paper big time. You know, and I'm not making excuses for them. I think it sucks too, but that's just the reality of things. And one time I was actually called into the editor's office and he sat me down to give me a a talking to because he was worried that I was giving too many negative reviews. And he said something like this, I'm quoting as closely as I can remember, but he said, These movie theaters advertise in our paper, and if you're telling people to avoid seeing all these movies, then how is that going to make our advertisers feel? (laughs) Luckily, I'm so obsessed with film criticism and reviewing movies that I actually had been... Now, this is super nerdy, so don't make fun of me, but I had been keeping this bell curve where I drew up, you know, ratings of all the films that I'd been reviewing that year, and so I actually showed them where my ratings fell along this bell curve, and I'm proud to report that the results were just like you'd expect on a bell curve. Most of the ratings were middle of the road, you know, because most films are average or mediocre. There were a few outliers being, you know, definite avoids, and then there were a few outliers that were exceptional, and so that got them off my back. But I've never changed ratings, and I wouldn't change ratings for an editor because, you know, that's selling out big time. And once a critic agrees to do something like that, then 
he or she is useless as a film critic. Anyway, I didn't mean for this to be all navel-gazy like this, but uh, I just wanted to illustrate that one possible reason that we're picking up, you know, the fact that mainstream critics are so dismissive of horror or they condescend and look down on horror is because it could be pressure from their editors or even their readership. And I say that totally sucks. But let's jump back to the earlier days of cinema when the medium was brand new. And I'll just say right now, I'm no Dr. Shock, so this isn't going to be exhaustive or anything. But I do have a couple of examples here that are important, and I think it may be of interest to you. Now, the very first instance of a horror film is somewhat debatable as far as like the year and the film itself. And I'd actually want to do more research before I take a stance on that. But there are two very famous examples of films that actually scared an audience to death. Not not to death, but it scared them quite a bit. And these actually were not horror films at all, though they did horrify the audience, at least momentarily. Way back in 1895, in France, there were two brothers. They were filmmakers. They were called the Lumiere Brothers. And they made a film called The Arrival of a Train. And it's this very short little silent film that just depicts a train pulling into the station and as the train arrives, it comes kind of at the camera, the audience would freak out because, you know, they were not accustomed to film grammar or even watching, you know, motion pictures. I mean, they just did not know how to react to this. And when they saw the train coming toward them, it scared them, you know, and they like would want to jump out of the way. So there are true accounts of that happening. And um, so that's only 50 seconds long. It's on YouTube, and I'll link it in the show notes for you so you can see the arrival of a train. Very scary stuff. <laughs> and the next example is similar. You had Edwin S. Porter's The Great Train Robbery from 1903. It wasn't a horror film either. And in fact, we classify this as like a Western, maybe even an action film, and maybe even a thriller, although that's kind of a stretch in today's standards. But again, you have an example of theater goers who were not overly accustomed to the cinema, so they'd get carried away and have difficulty understanding the separation between the screen and reality. And so um, the excerpt that I'm about to read to you is from the Philadelphia Inquirer. This is from June 26, 1904. And keep in mind, this movie review here is so old that it was published eight years before the sinking of the Titanic. <laughs> so here it is, quote, The Great Train Robbery has proved a thriller in nearly all the larger cities of the United States. There is a great amount of shooting. The smoke of the pistols is plainly seen, and men drop dead right and left, but no sound is heard. Side note here, because again, this is a silent film, right? So anyway, continuing. Nevertheless, while witnessing the exhibition, women put their fingers in their ears to shut out the noise of the firing. <laughs> so that just goes to show you they thought this was like happening or something. And then, and this comes from other reports in film history, in the final scene of The Great Train Robbery, you get this full-screen close-up of a bandit, okay? And he faces the audience, and then he draws his gun and fires at the audience. And reportedly, many people in the audience kind of jumped out of their seats or ducked or whatever because they um, were actually, I guess, carried away into thinking that they were getting fired upon. And so it's just super interesting that those examples there, they weren't even horror films, but the way they affected people at the time who just did not know how to, they just had no idea how to deal with the scares from the cinema. 
And by the way, that film, The Great Train Robbery, is only 13 minutes long. It's also on YouTube, and if you want to check it out, you know, I'll put it in the show notes as well. It's not horror, but it's one of those seminal films whose techniques have directly influenced the horror genre as we know it today. So it is significant. Now, I know this isn't a film history podcast, and you guys are probably like, do not let Jay of the Dead solo cast anymore. But my point is this. Audiences and film critics alike had to learn how to interact with the cinema, and they had to get accustomed to its conventions as well as its thrills and chills. And so those were some really early examples of when the cinema was in its infancy. But, you know, even if you jump 20 to 25 years later, you know, so we're talking about, you know, the early 1920s you still get the sense of this same kind of like adapting to the cinema. There's this New York Times film critic who grapples with his feelings after watching The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. Now, this is a a silent German film. It's a classic. It's one of the great films that we would consider one of the first significant, influential, classic horror films. And by the way, The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, if you haven't seen that, it's only 72 minutes long. It's a silent film. It's also on YouTube. I'll link that in the show notes as well. Now, here's the premise to that movie, as I recall it here. I think this is pretty close, though. You've got this inmate at an insane asylum, and he's explaining to his psychiatrist how he came to the institution. And he tells the shrink that um, there's this evil hypnotist, Dr. Caligari. And he had this murderous, creepy um, sleepwalker named Caesar. Okay. (laughs) And, uh, of course, Caesar kills people, uh, as you might imagine. And so back then, the New York Times didn't list the name of the reviewer. So, you know, I can't quote who wrote this. But it comes from a review that was dated March 20th, 1921. And here's the quote. It is obvious that a synopsis of such a story cannot convey the flavor of the actual vehicle. The cabinet of Dr. Caligari represents to me something very real and terrible. Do you remember the fear that you felt when you were a guest in the house of Usher? Which is a reference to that Edgar Allan Poe story, of course. The story of Caligari is entirely dissimilar, yet awakens the same kind of fear. That fear of things having no reason and loving evil instinctively. Now here's an interesting side note here. With respect to our previous episode on the proto-slasher, maybe Caligari is a very early proto-slasher because this film critic even picked up on something interesting and um, he wrote, in all the murders a strange dagger-like weapon is used so there is no doubt that they are all the work of one man. So that's pretty slasher-esque sounding to me. And then I have just one more review here of the Caligari by a different critic, also from the New York Times, and this is from April of 1921, and it reads, Dr. Caligari is bound to have a strong appeal for habitual motion picture spectators depressed by stock stuff. (laughs) Now, just a side note there, I think it's just fascinating that way back in 1921 that this film critic recognized that horror was a type of escapism that was a way to make yourself feel better by watching someone else who has it worse when things are bad in your own life. And I've said that a lot of times on this podcast, that that's probably my favorite benefit of being a horror fan, because when I watch horror movies, it makes my life seem easier and much more pleasant. And so continuing on with this review here, it says, the film then is a shocker for those who like such to revel in. It is a feast for those who want their fiction strong and straight. (laughs) 
So anyway, my initial segment here on mainstream film criticism and horror has two takeaway points in case you missed it or in case you're asleep right now. Number one, there is often pressure from the editors and the readership at large, so it may require some serious persecution for a mainstream film critic to champion a horror film. So putting that out there. And number two, as I've described with the arrival of a train, the great train robbery, and by quoting these two critics who wrote about Caligari, people deal with fear differently. And since this experience is subjective and personal, there's no telling how a horror flick will affect an audience or a film critic. And if they're unaccustomed to experiencing horror, then this may or may not be a pleasant experience for them. So on one hand, listeners out there, how can we horror fans lament when a horror film has successfully done its job, which is namely to horrify and repulse the viewer? Some people like to be scared and some people don't. Okay, this next one's going out to Dino. He was busting my chops in the comments about my segment. So uh, this one's for you, buddy. Jay of the Dead's Beastly Freaks. Okay. The next Beneath film that I want to review has some intriguing cover art, at least to me. I mean, maybe some people think it's boring, but it shows a picture of a small fishing boat or a rowboat on the water with uh, blood running down the side of it. Now, this movie is directed by Larry Fessenden, and spoiler alert for future podcasts, I'm actually planning to talk about him a lot more on upcoming episodes, despite this film. <laughs> So this Beneath has been compared to a cross between Alfred Hitchcock's Lifeboat and Jaws. And so I think that's right on the money. It's kind of a, a high concept where you got Jaws meets Hitchcock's Lifeboat. Here's the trailer. What are you planning on doing out here? We're just going to cross the lake, party, have some fun. Bad idea. Is there something about this lake you're not telling us? So the premise is, six co-eds who recently graduated from high school are celebrating with a day's excursion to this lake. They take a rowboat out on the lake and they become stranded when they're attacked by this large, man-eating fish and woman-eating fish, and the lifeboat comparison comes into play when they try to decide who must be sacrificed to the fish in order for the rest of them to try to escape and make their way back to shore. Now, that's actually a tremendous little premise. I love it. You know, when I first heard that premise, I'm like, I am in. Sign me up. This is a beastly freak movie. This is my kind of flick. And then you got this big moral dilemma when they're trying to have this discussion of who should be sacrificed among their group. And I tell you, this film would have been fine. And I've said it before about beastly freak movies. But if the beastly freak looks good or even passable, then you're good to go. If it looks terrible, then you have some serious problems. And this man-eating fish looks terrible. I mean, horrible. It is so awful. And I'm sorry to Larry Fessenden because I like that dude. But it looks like a giant rubber catfish with spiky, crazy teeth, right? And then it has this spiny vertebrae. And guys, I'm telling you, 
It looks ridiculous. <laughs> I can't even emphasize it. I can't prepare you enough for how terrible this looks. Seriously, I mean, there are moments when the fish looks okay. I mean, you see part of it, but I think it's the eyeballs that bother me, the eyes on the fish, and it's just unacceptable. I think Fessenden should have elected not to show the fish at all, you know, or just show like very small parts of it. Because I tell you, it takes all the stakes out of the movie. It takes the fear out of the movie. And, you know, in a way, you kind of feel like you're watching like a a high school production just because the fish looks like a high school drama team like put it together or something. I'm I'm sorry. Anyway, one highlight of this movie is that it has um, an actor that I really love from the TV series Breaking Bad. So there was a, a character in there, this old guy. He sits in a wheelchair and he can't talk and he rings this bell to communicate. Um, His character name is Tio Salamanca, right? Um, And it's played by Mark Margolis. And he's actually in this. He is the harbinger of doom, this creepy old geezer, you know, who's kind of threatening and love seeing him in this. And I tell you, instead of spending your time on Beneath, if you haven't seen the Breaking Bad series, it's not a horror series. It's a crime series. Man, that's good. I mean, it's just tremendous. And it is worth it just to watch the scenes that involve Mark Margolis. Because I tell you what, you would be blown away how much suspense is generated with this little old dude sitting in a wheelchair ringing a bell will blow your mind. Anyways, back to Beneath. So the second biggest problem next to the fish is they're on this lake, okay? And it's not like, I mean, I've been on lakes a lot and there are some gigantic lakes where like if you're out in the middle of the water, you're really far from the shore. But this lake is more like a river in in terms of its width. And I'm talking like more of a West Coast river rather than an East Coast river because some of the rivers back east are wide. Like I grew up near the Ohio River, which is about a mile across. But like, (laughs) I mean, this thing, honestly, you could swim it. And I'm not kidding. So they've got this problem where their boat is damaged and it's taking on water. And then there's this man-eating fish. And then I won't go into it, but they have issues with their oars and stuff. And so they're immobile. They're kind of dead on the water, so to speak, literally. You know, so the big thing is they need to get to the shore. Well, they may be far away from the dock where they launch the boat, but they are not far from the shore, you guys. You can see the shore. At all times, it's very close to the boat. You never get the sense that they're truly marooned. So it's like a double whammy. The fish looks fake. So it's like, okay, you got this giant rubber fish in the water that's fake. And then you guys are close to the shore. I'm not scared of this horror movie. I'm sorry. I just, I wanted to be. I love this premise. And I like this director. He's a smart guy. And this guy knows a lot about horror. Larry Fessenden, I'm, I'm going to try to refrain from talking about him because I want to save it for a future episode, but he's actually one of the talking heads in that uh, documentary, Birth of the Living Dead, and I love his comments. Like, everything he says, it's like, that dude gets me. I mean, he speaks my language when it comes to analyzing and appreciating horror films, so I like this guy. I wanted to root for him, but he's got some serious problems here, Larry. I'm sorry, buddy. Anyways, a long story short, because I'll kind of just spare you guys a little bit. Another huge problem for me, as if there weren't enough, is one of the greatest dramatic moments or, or sequences could have been the discussion of who is going into the water. Well, that is squandered, and I mean just absolutely wasted. 
it just <laughs> there's that there are many many lapses in logic and in character motivation um this film just has a lot of problems so i just tell you if you're making a horror film out there you know don't use fractured fx for your creature effects i'm sorry to them i apologize i i mean no disrespect but you guys come on let's get on the stick here who am i right as a stupid film critic i don't know anything but i'm just saying that fish looks fake so This film does have a good tagline. I always appreciate good taglines. It says, they're only friends on the surface. And yeah, of course, this is another one of those films where the monsters are actually inside the boat and not outside it. The fish is just a big fish. And it's just an animal that needs to eat. But it's not the real monster. The monsters are the people inside the boat. And I really appreciate that. I love that. Anytime that happens in a film, like in The Ruins, for example, it's exceptional. So compliments on that aspect. But even though Beneath sounds really fun, it sounds like a great premise, the execution is just too flawed. And this is a four out of 10. And I say avoid it. Okay, what's next? All right, well, I've been excited to explain what we're going to be doing here on Horror Movie Podcast over the next couple of months. I want to explain why you've got this Jay of the Dead solo cast episode here and why the next few episodes may be a little bit weird. (laughs) In October of 2014, we want to celebrate Halloween in a big way. So this October, there are five Fridays, okay, with the fifth one being October 31st, Halloween Day. Well, about 16 months ago, and this was even before we officially launched Horror Movie Podcast, I had planned to have this epic month where we're going to cover the entire Halloween franchise on this podcast. And I'm talking about all 10 films, plus maybe um, a few little extras. Now, I know that every horror podcast ever has covered the Halloween franchise, so that's nothing new. But if you've been listening to our show for any amount of time, you'll know that we have our own little specific approach around here to talking about horror films. So... Our objective is to bring you epic feature-length reviews of each Halloween film with in-depth discussion and analysis, horror movie podcast style. In fact, just last night, we recorded our review of John Carpenter's Halloween, the first film, and I can tell you right now, we discussed that movie in-depth for about one hour and 45 minutes. So, and that's just the review of the first film. So... Anyway, I'm really excited about our Halloween celebration, and by celebration I mean we want to celebrate the holiday itself and the franchise by doing this big five-part series. And I can't make any promises, but we're hoping to get some great special guests on with us on some of the reviews, so that'll be something else to look forward to. And just to help you get excited, I'll just tell you the schedule right now for our five-part series. So on Friday, October 3rd, that'll be episode 27, We'll be reviewing Halloween and Halloween 2. Then on Friday, October 10th, episode 28, we're going to be doing Halloween 3, 4, and 5. Friday, October 17th, Halloween 6, Halloween H2O, 20 years later, and then Halloween Resurrection. And then on Friday, October 24th, we're going to be doing Halloween and Halloween 2. Those are the Rob Zombie ones, of course. And then on Halloween Day... Friday, October 31st, that'll be our 31st episode, coincidentally, 
Uh, We'll be giving you a franchise overview of the entire Halloween franchise. We'll also be talking about the documentary Halloween, 25 Years of Terror, and maybe some other little surprises depending on what we can pull together. Anyway, these are our ambitious plans, and even though it's only August right now, we're pretty under the gun, because in addition to these lengthy reviews that we're recording for Halloween, we still need to produce this bi-weekly show, so episodes 22 through 26 might be a little random and more of a hodgepodge than even our usual Frankensteinian episodes, but if you bear with us, we'll still bring you bi-weekly show with five straight weeks of epic Halloween reviews for October. So that's the plan. Okay, so there's a trailer I want to talk to you about, and I've got a roundabout way that I want to talk about it. So if you'll bear with me, I think it'll be worth it. Wolfman Josh and I have been anxiously awaiting the release of this new Kevin Smith horror movie called Tusk. And at Comic-Con 2014, the trailer debuted, and you can watch it now. It's everywhere. And I'll play a clip of it shortly, but first I want to make a distinction here. This Kevin Smith movie, again, is called Tusk, as in the tooth of a walrus, right? Well, ever since I heard about the Kevin Smith film, I've been thinking there was already another horror film out there that was also called Tusk. Well, there's not. Now, there are other movies named Tusk or Tusks, but they're not horror films. So, I was thinking of a horror movie... And that movie is called Husk, as in corn husk, right? And there is such a movie called Husk from 2011. So as a service to the listeners, I do this sometimes when titles are confusing or very close. It's probably not necessary for anybody else in the world, but since I get confused in my own head, like I did this recently on Movie Podcast Weekly with Edge of Darkness versus Edge of Tomorrow. (laughs) So... Anyway, I do this little service where I wanted to bring you a bonus review of Husk. So you'll have a clear-cut distinction in your minds between this Husk movie, which is about killer scarecrows, and it's from 2011, versus the Kevin Smith movie that's coming soon called Tusk. So anyway, the very first time I heard about Husk was in January 2011 while listening to episode 3 of Planet Macabre. It was Greg Amortis' segment, which was called News from the Underworld. And as part of my personal mission to get everybody to listen to Planet Macabre, my all-time favorite horror movie podcast, here's a little clip from that episode where Greg Amortis and Bill Shetty briefly talk about Husk, because this is my first exposure to the film. A sack at news item, Horror Fest, the After Dark original movies has finally released their new lineup, and it'll start January 28th in select theaters. Now, I looked up some of the plots for these movies. Husk, the story sees five friends on a weekend trip who become stranded in isolated farmland where crows attack their SUV. They soon realize that the cornfields are inhabited by reanimated human scarecrows who reproduce by killing and forcing their undead victims to join their ranks. Boy, that sounds cheesy, but I mean, it it does. (laughs) Okay, so I love that. Just a side note there, you can find all of the Planet Macabre archived episodes at Bill Shetty's website, horrorontheGo.com. 
And at the top of the site, if you click on catalog and then previous podcasts, and then you just scroll down to Planet Macabre, and that clip you just heard was from episode three. And so as they wrapped up the segment there, they said they thought it sounded cheesy, and it does kind of sound cheesy from the premise. So I can understand why Bill Shetty and Greg Amortis said that, having not yet seen the movie when that was recorded. But guys, I can tell you this. I thought that too, but I was wrong. Husk is a freaky little horror flick, and I think I love it. Here's the trailer. How did this happen? Relax. Just need a phone. Hello? Anybody home? Any day above ground is a good day. Okay, so this is one of those After Dark films, and you know the After Dark Horror Fest people, but this title was uh, one of their After Dark originals, which were generally released. Those were all released in 2011, 2013. It's kind of funny to me that it is an After Dark original or that it's called an original because Husk is supposedly a remake of the 1988 film called Scarecrows. Now, I don't think I've seen Scarecrows. It seemed really familiar to me, so maybe I saw part of it on HBO or whatever. I I have no idea, but I am curious about it. So if you're familiar with Scarecrows, then let me know. I'd actually like to try to get to it within the next couple of episodes so I can talk about it just on the strength of this movie. So just for the record... If Husk is related to the 1988 movie Scarecrows, then it would have to be a reboot or a very liberal remake because the identities and motives of the victim characters are different. But I will say the concept of the killer Scarecrows and how they affect their victims are the same in both movies. So that much is true. So I guess it probably is a remake of some sort. Anyway, I've got to tell you that I am really impressed with this horror film, if you can't tell already. Husk looks really good, and it's actually uh, pretty scary. I mean, I wasn't hiding under my blankets or anything, but it has a few effective jump scares, and the monsters are freaky. And I'll talk about them more in a minute, but first, here's the premise. You've got this group of friends. You've got four guys and one gal, and the girl is played by an actress that I'm quite fond of, Tamman Sursok. You can look at her on IMDb there, look at her photo, and you can see what I mean. <laughs> and uh, So anyway, they're traveling to a cabin or a lake or somewhere for the weekend. It doesn't really matter because they never get there, so whatever. But anyway, they're involved in a car wreck, and they get stuck beside this huge cornfield. Now, I don't know about you, but if my horror film can't be set down inside a coal mine then a cornfield is pretty much the next best place because cornfields are very freaky. I'm so glad I don't live beside a cornfield. If you live beside a cornfield, write in and tell us here how that is for you and what that's like because I can't even imagine that. Anyway, they see this house there in the distance, so they start trekking through the cornfield and they encounter a very freaky-looking scarecrow. Seriously freaky. Now, let me just pause to say here, when I tell you this movie is about killer scarecrows, I know that probably that stupid Wizard of Oz has ruined that imagery for everybody. But trust me, Husk is going to fix it for you because these scarecrows are scary, like legitimately 
So in terms of a monster, they're mysterious, they're lethal, and they're fast. Very brutal. And uh, they slash at their victims, and they slice up their skin with deep wounds, and they leave them just a bloody mess. And they drag their victims through the cornfields at very fast speeds. And they're also good with ropes and crucifixes. So trust me on this. I can't believe this movie hasn't had a sequel because these are very cool monsters. And this movie has great jump scares, like I said earlier, and it's very well done, totally legit. So honestly, I think Husk has just about everything that you'd want in a modern horror film. Maybe not every single thing, but it's very well executed, I will say that. And it makes sense that I'd feel this way, really, because if you think about it, this movie has a very similar setup to my all-time favorite horror film, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre from 1974. So you got this stranded group of kids who wander through a field to the nearest house and they bring absolute horror down upon themselves. So (laughs) I'm kind of anticipating your skepticism. And I bet you're out there thinking, yeah, but how are they killer scarecrows? I mean, right? So I'll just say this. Obviously, Husk has some uh, supernatural elements. But the story that goes along with that, and what I mean is when the revelatory backstory is explained, it's enough to back it up, and it holds water. I mean, unlike No Vacancy, which I talked about earlier, No Vacancy falls apart as the story unfolds, but Husk has a great, creepy little story that, that in part dates all the way back to Genesis in the Bible. There's actually a moment in the film where a scripture reference is shown, and I'd just advise you to take the time to look that up. It's cool. And uh, the biblical story that this takes some inspiration from actually makes a very cool horror story. So that's cool. But don't worry, there's more to it than that. And I just want uh, to appreciate some of the source material because apparently it served as an inspiration here. Now, there's another very creepy recurring sequence involving a sewing machine. And if you don't think a sewing machine could be creepy, then remember that you didn't think scarecrows could be scary either. I'm telling you right now, trust Jay of the Dead. Husk needs to be the next thing you watch. I really hope it is. I mean, that is the shining star of episode 22. But I will say, I mean, there are things that bug me in this movie too. For example, I mean, you've got these horrific, astounding events that transpire. And then you've got these guys who aren't talking about the situation. I mean, it's like if something like that happened among your group of friends, you'd be trying to figure it out. You'd be frantic and these guys are silent and it's kind of unrealistic and frustrating. And then at one point in the movie, I mean, they explain part of it in terms of a chess game. And the last time that worked well was with Jeff Goldblum and Independence Day, right? When he did that checkmate line. But I have mixed feelings about it here. I think I ultimately liked it, but it may throw some viewers off. So I'll just give you the heads up on that. But to try to really describe it better, though, I'd call Husk a blend of a few different horror subgenres. Definitely supernatural. And maybe even a little bit of zombie stuff in there, a little bit. Because this movie capitalizes on that unthinkable scenario that Wolfman Josh loves, where you face your loved one, but it's not really them anymore. And I'd also call Husk a blend between like maybe a possession movie, maybe a haunting movie, and maybe a zombie movie. It's kind of like all those things. 
And I wanted to make sure that I mentioned, too, that Husk was written and directed by Brett Simmons. And there's actually a movie out there right now that you can find on Amazon, guys. It's called Animal. And Brett Simmons directed that. And on the basis of what I've seen here with Husk, Animal is going to be the next film I track down there and check out. Because Animal is a beastly freak movie. So I, I already am in favor of it for that. But it also appears to be a siege narrative. So I'm feeling giddy inside as I record this. <laughs> as for the ending of Husk, I will not reveal any spoilers, of course, because I don't do that. But also... I don't want to oversell the movie, and so I'll pick on the ending a little bit. Honestly, it's one of those ambiguous endings. I mean, a lot of people have very strong feelings about this. I was reading the comment boards on IMDb, and, you know, people have their theories. I'm sure you will, too. But um, it is fun to discuss that way. But for some people, it might be frustrating. Honestly, um, I wish there would have been a little more done with the ending. I'm not super crazy about it, but I could see it being a fun debate piece. So. I'm just telling you right now, listeners, if you want a scary movie for date night, because this would be a great movie for date night, or one that you'd like to debate afterwards at Denny's with your friends, then uh, Rent Husk. Check it out. So I'm giving this a 7.5 out of 10. This is a strong rental recommendation for most listeners out there. I mean, for me personally, this would be a buy if I were a purchaser of movies. But, um, you know, I'll list it as a strong rental and just know in my heart that it's a buy it. But it's a 7.5 out of 10, and that is Husk. Now that you're clear on what Husk is and that it's a very good killer scarecrows movie, there's this upcoming Kevin Smith movie called Tusk. So I'm excited to see this movie, and I'm so excited I can hardly stand it. I wish Wolfman Josh were here right now to discuss it with me. I bet you do too, actually. But here's what I'll do. I'll just talk about it briefly for now and fill you in a little bit on Tusk in case you're not up on it. And then I'll try to record something with the Wolfman for the next episode where we can talk more about Tusk. Before I kick that off, though, I'll give you the trailer that was just released at Comic-Con 2014. Always do sober what you do drunk. I'll teach you to keep your mouth shut. Hemingway said that. Yes, he did. And he said it to me. I don't want you to go to Canada tomorrow. It's for the podcast. It's what I do. I travel around and I interview weird or interesting people. So look out, you crazy Canucks. Wandering Wallace <laughs> takes a raunchy road trip up to the Great White North. Hello. I'm an old man who has enjoyed a long and storied life at sea. And after eons of oceanic adventure, I know I do not wish to spend my remaining years alone while I have such stories to share. How far is Bifrost from here? It's about two hours from here. It's about two hours away. I hate American guys. Good evening. It's nice to meet you. Could I interest you in some tea? So what happened after the boat sank? I was alone. And then something very swift and frightening moved by me. A walrus saves your life? The walrus is far more evolved than any man I've ever known. Present company included. Thank you. You're welcome. Would you? Huh. Would you? There, there. It'll be all right, Mr. Tusk. Okay, so if you're lost right now and you have no idea why Josh and I are so excited about this, let me just try to get you wound up too. I'm sure everybody knows who Kevin Smith is. 
very popular indie director who did Clerks, Mall Rats, etc. You know who he is. He also directed Red State, which I really love. Anyway, Kevin Smith is a big-time podcaster as well, and the premise for Tusk is based on a story from one of his Smodcast episodes. And so I'll just read here from Wikipedia. If Josh were here, I would just have him tell you all this. But anyway, I don't want to get any details wrong. So it reads, The idea for Tusk came during the recording of Smodcast 259, The Walrus and the Carpenter. In the episode, Smith, with his longtime friend and producer Scott Mosier, discussed an article featuring a Gumtree ad where a homeowner was offering a living situation free of charge if the lodger agrees to dress as a walrus. The discussion went on from there, resulting in almost an hour of the episode being spent on reconstructing and telling a hypothetical story based on the ad. (laughs) Smith then told his Twitter followers to tweet, Pound walrus yes if they wanted to see their hypothetical turned into a film, or pound walrus no if they did not. A vast majority of Smith's following agreed that the film should be made. A couple cool things, and you heard this in the trailer there. Wolfman Josh and I think this is probably the first film that is actually inspired by a podcast episode and whose protagonist is a podcaster. That's extra cool to us. So even if this turns out to be not a great film, this will probably be one that I own just because of that. And Tusk will have its world premiere at the 2014 Toronto International Film Festival. Wolfman Josh goes to that often, and so maybe he'll get to see it there. They're going to screen it as part of uh, Midnight Madness. But it's supposed to be released in theaters, and I think wide, on September 19th. So that's just a couple weeks away. I'm super excited about that. Now, I will say I love the human centipede undertones that I'm getting from the trailer, but I am genuinely worried that this is going to be like a horror comedy. There's obviously comedy elements in it, and I'm just, since it's Kevin Smith, I'm afraid that it's going to be too much and it'll end up neutering the horror. But still, since it stars Michael Parks, who is just over the moon, I mean, he's exceptional. That's all I need to know. I'm there. My ticket is bought, (laughs) so to speak, and I am there. So I'll see this film the very first chance I get, and Wolfman Josh and I will definitely review it for you on Horror Movie Podcast. So that's Tusk. And by the way, I'm sure everybody knows this, but there's also a new trailer for Horns, which was released at Comic-Con 2014. I'll just say right here and incur your wrath. I'm already disappointed by looking at this trailer for horns, but I'll tell you what we'll do. In episode 23, we'll try to talk more in depth about trailers. We'll try to talk about horns, Annabelle, Ouija, and Honeymoon, and hopefully I'll get to talk more Tusk with Wolfman Josh. Okay, as you all know, uh, we like to take time here on Horror Movie Podcast to appreciate any iTunes reviews that we get. Seriously, that is the best way to help our podcast because the more reviews that we get, even if they're negative, actually, it actually helps our podcast kind of rise to the top and get noticed more and so forth. So anyway, we did get um, a comment here from Matt Hartung and The title is Just What I Was Looking For, and it's five stars, and it reads, This is a horror movie fan's dream podcast. Great discussions while covering all the subgenres of horror. Being a new father, I especially like the ratings and recommendations since I don't have a lot of time to watch movies. If you love horror movies, you must listen to this podcast. 
I give it a 10 out of 10 and say, buy it. <laughs> Matt, thanks so much. I mean, Matt, that was awesome how you uh, used our little rating system on our own podcast. That was super cool. And by the way, Matt, uh, congrats on being a new father. I'll tell you guys the truth and not to get sentimental and sappy here on the podcast because this is a horror podcast and we're tough, damn it. But I will say being a dad is the greatest thing in my life. I just love being a dad and it's weird because... It's also the scariest thing in life, scarier than any horror movie. So good luck with that, Matt. You're up to the challenge, brother. So thanks a lot for that. We also got a voicemail, and this comes from our friend Eric in Long Island. And I tell you, Eric set me straight, and I'm man enough to admit it. Um, I'll, I'll talk more about that in a minute, but here's this voicemail from Eric. Hey, guys, this is Eric from Long Island. I'm enjoying the horror movie podcast. Uh, one argument in support of Black Christmas being the first slasher is that it's well documented that John Carpenter originally intended Halloween to be a direct sequel to Black Christmas, just taking place on a different holiday. And therefore, without Black Christmas, there probably would not be a Halloween. So, loving the show. Keep up the good work. Eric, thanks for your voicemail. That's awesome. Now, if people aren't familiar, in our proto-slasher episode, I went way out on a limb and I tried to assert that just maybe, <laughs> just maybe that the first official full-blown slasher was not Black Christmas 1974, but maybe it was Alice Sweet Alice from 1976, I believe. And so I'll just say it like this, Eric. 99 out of 100 horror fans would probably say, yep, Black Christmas was the first slasher. And that one would be me, probably. So... <laughs> I'm probably the only person in the universe, but I tell you, it's been a while since I've seen Alice Sweet Alice, but let me try to articulate it like this, and I'll probably have to defend this further, maybe in the future when I'm better prepared and when I can revisit Alice Sweet Alice, but I will say, without giving spoilers, the uh, killer in Black Christmas is, um, how shall we say, less mobile. Let's just say that, less mobile, more of a stationary type of being, whereas my contention is that in Alice Sweet Alice, it looks more like a slasher as we know them today. And so probably, you know, if I'm just putting it out there, probably, Eric, you're right. Because I love Black Christmas, by the way, but I probably have to suck it up and say, yeah, Black Christmas probably is the first full-blown slasher. But I just love Alice Sweet Alice so much. I want it to have a place in history and the next time I watch it again, I'll really take good notes. And maybe I'll have to do that one day where I like watch the two films back to back. And Wolfman Josh also shot a hole in everything I said last time. And he said, you know, there are probably some <laughs> Italian films that came before those. I mean, or around that time. And so that's awesome. So thanks again for your <laughs> voicemail, Eric. You're the best. Okay, well, that just about wraps up. Episode 22, the Jay of the Dead solo cast of Horror Movie Podcast. I just want to thank all of those who stuck with me through this entire episode. Believe me, I know, I am well aware that it is preferable to have the big guns on the show with me. You want to hear from Doc Shock, you want to hear from Wolfman Josh. Guys, I know that, I totally do. And in fact, as I was planning to launch Horror Movie Podcast back in the day, you know, I thought, well... It would probably be a lot simpler just to do a, a solo cast because then I don't have to deal with anybody's schedules and I can record any time I want 
But then I just knew that it's just not the same when you don't have a panel of minds there to discuss the horror film. So I'm aware of that, you know, so I hope you don't push against this kind of an episode every once in a while too much because it is not my intention to go solo casting. So I want to keep my awesome team here with me and and as much as they are available, they will be here. But I just want to thank you again and I think it will be worth it in order to have this big Halloween extravaganza. I think you'll um you'll be glad you put up with this, in other words. Anyway, we do love your comments, so please get involved in the Horror Movie Podcast community. It's got to be the best podcasting community out there. You guys are super awesome. We brag about it every time, and um, you know we don't even have to brag about it. Just go read the comments, and you'll see we have a tremendous community of friends who love the genre. So you can leave a comment in the show notes for episode 22, or any of the episodes for that matter, or you can email us at horrormoviepodcast at gmail.com. You can even call and leave us a voicemail like our friend Eric did, and that number is 801-382-8789. And you can find all our episodes, and that includes the weekly Horror Movie Podcast and Horror Metropolis Archives. It's there at our website, horrormoviepodcast.com. You can subscribe free in iTunes, and you can follow us on Twitter at HorrorMovieCast. And I just want to take a second to thank Fred Ingram for the use of his music for the Horror Movie Podcast theme song. You can find more of Fred Ingram's music at FrederickIngram.com, and I've linked it there in the show notes. Wolfman Josh and I have another show about films at MoviePodcastWeekly.com, and you can also follow Josh on Twitter at IcarusArts. He tweets out some good stuff. You can find Dr. Shock's exceptional movie blog at dvdinfatuation.com and you can follow him on Twitter at dvdinfatuation. And I tell you something, if you're the kind of person who sits and keeps Twitter open while you're at work, if you're allowed to do that, make sure you're following Doc Shock at DVD Infatuation because he will give you cool movie stuff to read all day long. Trust me on that. And all this stuff that I'm talking about is going to be linked in the show notes for episode 22. But I think that's it. So I thank you for listening and join us again in two weeks for Horror Movie Podcast, where we're dead serious about horror movies. Horror Movie Podcast.